This is Originality, the podcast where we explore the roots of creativity and creative genius. I am one of your hosts, Aline Sims, and I am joined as ever by the amazing Kay Tempest Bradford. I don't know. Was that a ghost or I don't know. I don't even know what that was. <laughs> it was the ghost of podcasts, past, present and future all uh, rolled into into one ghost. We're efficient. I mean, yeah, you got to give it to us. Um, so Tempest, any news to catch up, catch us up on or are we just going to dive right in? I mean, it's it's been so long. It feels like it's been a really long time since we have been together, even though for our audience, it's been like two weeks and they're gonna be like, what? Yeah. Um, because like I went on a trip, you had some app camp, there was Europeanness involved, there was uh, Cruises Broadcon. Yeah, so I think the last time we talked, didn't we record three yeah, episodes ago. at once? Is it it's only yeah. So yeah. So yeah, it's been like for you and I, it's been forever. This is the magic of podcasting um, and magic. The benefits of also, I think, releasing a show bi-weekly instead of weekly is that it's a little bit less pressure for us. Okay, so let's just dive in and talk about today's guest. Well, actually, all right, I'll, I'll talk about today's guest a little bit. Um, so today's guest is here to talk about uh, a comic book he wrote, and it's not the only comic book he's written, that was turned into a really fantastic movie recently. And so he agreed to come on and talk to us about all of that, plus kind of his his creative process and his advice for creators. But before we get too far into it, let me uh, let him tell you what's interesting about him. Uh, well, <laughs> I, uh, my name is Anthony Johnston. I'm not entirely sure what's interesting about me, but what I do is I am an author, uh, mainly of uh, graphic novels and video games. Uh, I also have written a couple of novels and short stories and what have you, but mostly it's graphic novels and video games. And I am best known in those worlds for, um, well, now for a book called The Coldest City, which became the movie uh, Atomic Blonde, which was released recently, uh, and the post-apocalyptic epic Wasteland. Uh, in video games, I'm best known for scripting the first Dead Space game. Uh, I co-wrote Zombie U uh, for the Wii U, a launch title that was, and uh, I worked on Shadow of Mordor. So that is Anthony um, with his amazing British accent. British accents really are the best. They really having are. Come from, come from Europe and having heard many accents, I still feel like the British accent is, well, the British, like there's not four the of them. There's only the one. The it's range. A very, very small island. Like The range of them. They, they are my favorite. I agree. Uh, so... One of the cool things about The Coldest City and Atomic Blonde is that The Coldest City was optioned before it was published. And so what that means is that before the graphic novel hit shelves, I think maybe even before it was printed, there was already an agreement in place for it to potentially be made into a movie. This is really unusual. It's not super unusual for books to be optioned for TV or movies. It is much more unusual for them actually to be made 
into books or movies, but for it to happen at all before it's actually published, I think is, I mean, obviously it's not unheard of, but I think it's a really rare thing. Yes. That's my understanding of, of how things usually work. Um, and, and what I like about, you know, the story that Anthony tells is that it, it's all down to his prior creative work is how that happened. Uh, yeah. Well, let's let him talk about it just a little bit here. Well, the publisher, Oni Press, had a, well, they still have a media arm, but at the time they had a partnership for their media arm with um, a producer in Hollywood. And all of the books that they published under their standard contracts would be represented by the media arm. And they would basically package stuff together, put a pitch together to try and sell the rights to these books to uh, studios and producers in Hollywood. And that's, you know, just like many other books that I did with them, this was this was one of those. And that's what they did. The The main difference is that uh, this one was sold. Normally they wait until a book is published and then they put a package together consisting of the book itself plus a pitch, a movie style pitch, you know, a, a take uh, on how the material could be adapted. This one, however, uh, the uh, they had a meeting with Charlize Theron's uh, production people and she said that she was looking for something like this uh for a you know her her bond her born her franchise character uh an action franchise specifically and i had at that time just turned in the initial pitch and synopsis for the coldest city and so in you know, what's a fairly unusual move they presented the pitch to charlize's people and said this isn't even written yet, but trust us, like, you know, we know this guy, we've worked with him a lot, it'll be good. Um, but, and here's the here's the pitch, tell us what you, you know, does this fit what you're looking for? And it did. Uh, and so then I finished writing the script. So, yeah, I mean, the pitch is really what caught their eye, which I think is just really remarkable. Yes. Um, and like I said, it's it's in part because, you know, they've already worked with him before. And so they were aware of, you know, what he could do, how good he was. But I, I also just love the idea that it was the idea that, you know, Charlize, this production company, they were sold on the the very idea that he was putting forth. And um, he's going to talk about this a little bit later about how different writers, you know, uh, deal with different ideas. So you can't always tell from an idea that something is going to be good. Like there are plenty of good ideas out there that have been turned into terrible, horrible, no good, very bad books, <laughs> TV shows, and movies. Um, and 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 I think that that's what's what's really interesting about the whole concept of like thinking about you know where ideas come from, which you know this podcast is all about. Um, because no matter where your ideas come from, unless you can <laughs> execute them well they like they're not going to be super amazing you know by default just because the idea itself is super amazing so i i love the idea that he had a cool concept that he then made into something that people are like yes that's that's what we were looking for that's that is exactly mm-hmm. what we thought it would be from this pitch we're going to make a movie. It's going to be amazing. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to, I'll link to the episode. So it'll be in the show notes. So if you're not a listener of The Incomparable, uh, which is a, a pod, another podcast that I do, um, Jason Snell interviewed Anthony about 
all of this. And this is actually a passion project of Anthony's, which I didn't know when he and I talked, but he took time off of work, off of his regular, you know, the, the things that he already does. He saved up money and check, I think, I think it's like something like three months that he took to create this. So this was a project that he did on spec that he did speculating that it would be something that that could be sold and be successful. So he took a huge, huge risk. Uh, thank goodness. Cause it paid off really well, I think. So I think one of the things that people are curious about is, so if, if I write something or I create something that is turned into another type of media. So if I write a book that's turned into a movie or a book that's turned into a TV show or a movie that's turned into a TV show or, you know, a piece of art that's, uh, you know, <laughs> inspires a book or, you know, whatever that is, uh, what, what involvement does the original creator of the original thing get to have in things? And I think the answer to that is, it really depends upon the agreement that you have. But I asked Anthony how much input he had in the screenplay for Atomic Blonde, and this is what he told me. I didn't have any direct involvement in writing the screenplay. Uh, you know, I wasn't, I didn't do any of the screenwriting. However, I did give notes on each draft of the screenplay. Uh, and this was one of the things where, and I think this helped with it being a fairly indie style production. The producers were very gracious about wanting me to be as involved as I wanted to be and was practical. Uh, you know, they could, they had the right to just tell me to go away and let them get on with it, you know, because they know what they're doing. And that would have been fine and normal and I wouldn't have had a problem with that. However, instead, they were actually very, as I say, gracious about saying, okay, here's the script. What do you think? And, you know, here's the approach that we're thinking of taking. What do you think? And taking my notes and bringing me on. I have a credit as a co-producer in the movie because I gave notes on just about, you know, every stage, everything that they sent me. And I even, I saw a rough edit of the movie last year uh, and gave notes on that as well. So I wasn't involved day to day. You know, I can't say that I was involved in it, thinking about it every day or was there on set every day or anything like that. But I was more involved than many authors get. Uh, and that was mainly by, as I say, the good graces of the producers. So, uh, yeah, I guess that's cool. <laughs> it is cool. And and I, I think that that is, it is, I think, kind of rare, especially um, if you are not sort of J.K. Rowling level of rich and in control yeah. to to be able to be as involved. Um, and, and one of the things... Um, that, that Anthony talked about in a part of the clip that you didn't play was um, saying that the producers were were happy to have him involved uh, in part because he he didn't get too precious <laughs> about preserving like every single detail of the the thing that he wrote in this screen format because he understands that there's a difference between um, you know a, a written format or even a written visual format like a graphic novel and um, a video format movie. TV, whatnot. And, and I think that that, that is where sometimes there is, there can be a disconnect between creative people when uh, translating from one type of medium to another. Um, and so being able to understand that I think was, was very helpful to him in, in helping them craft uh, and move forward with that process, which I think is absolutely fabulous. Um, but then again, you know, sometimes it's just that movie people or TV people or whatever it is, they are uh, terrible and <laughs> they do horrible things like they 
you know, cast only white people in your book uh, that's about black people and um, other such horriblenesses that you as an author don't necessarily have control over. I mean, one of the most famous cases of that happening recently was to Ursula K. Le Guin. Well, that's not recent. That was that was several years ago. But when uh, Sci-Fi Channel did The Wizard of Earthsea, oh, my God, that that whole thing was just a travesty. I don't think I heard about that. So A Wizard of Earthsea... Um, written by Ursula K. Le Guin many decades ago. Beloved book. Um, I guess it's technically a YA book. Uh, they didn't have that designation back when she wrote it. But one of the interesting things about A Wizard of Earthsea is that the all the main characters basically are brown people. Uh, it's set on uh, an alternate Earth, you know, secondary world fantasy. Earthsea is, is what the world is called. Um, but, and you do actually have to get a little ways into the book, like not, you know, halfway or anything, but you get a little ways into the book uh, before you realize that Ged and um, pretty much all the people that he comes in contact with are all brown. They're not white people. They are brown people. And this was something that uh, Le Guin did very much on purpose. And it's something that has been remarked on. And one of the things that people love about the book, you know, not everybody, but like there are some people who really love that about that book is that she gets you really super invested in this character she's like by the way they're brown now you're invested in some brown people and the reader's like oh i'm invested in brown people amazing so fast forward to uh i think it was the early 2000s i'm i'm really forgetting the actual dates on this mostly because i like to forget that this entire thing existed mm -hmm. but um yeah so uh sci-fi channel wanted to make a mini series based off of a wizard of earthsea and i think like the the second book in that series. There are four of them in total, I believe. Um, and they, they cast a lot of, a lot of white people in these roles. Uh, Ged was, uh, I can't remember what that dude's name is. I think the only high profile Brown person in that entire movie was Danny Glover and he was playing Ged's mentor. And so then he ended up being a magical Negro, even though there mm. had not been a magical Negro in the book. It was just all kinds of things. You were just like, why? Why? Why does this have to be this way? Um, and Ursula Le Guin talked about her disappointment with those things. She was very upset. Um, she, you know, she wrote some some public things about how this all happened. And in part, it happened because she did not have, you know, ultimate creative control over the casting. She had been somewhat involved in the production in the beginning. And, and one of the things that she was involved with, or one of the reasons why she agreed to do it is because early on, Philippa Boyens, I think that's how you say that name, uh, was attached to write the script. And she was one of the people who worked on the script for The Lord of the Rings. And this was back when, you know, Lord of the Rings was was new and everybody was like very much in love with everything. And so like all the people from Lord of the Rings were like getting all these jobs. Mm -hmm. And so that was one of Philippa Boyan's um, jobs was to write the script for Earthsea. And then she, I think, became unattached from the project at some point or she wasn't the only person who got major input on the script. And then that just snowballed into a whole bunch of other stuff. But because of whatever agreement contract, you know, the deal that was signed uh, between Ursula K. Le Guin and whatever production company did this, she, you know, Le Guin didn't have any control over a whole lot of different stuff. Um, but she had, she had only agreed to do it because she thought that they were going to keep certain aspects of her vision. One of which was the fact that everybody was brown and, and they didn't do that. And I feel like that's a very different fundamental 
thing than, you know, oh, you didn't keep that that one scene between that guy and that girl that I really love that I worked so hard on or whatever it was, because sometimes things just don't work out between, you know, one medium to another. Mm -hmm. But that's not one of the things. No, that's awful. Ugh, sorry. That's awful. There's a lot of nonsense. Yeah, it's a lot of nonsense. And I think that's, I don't know, I feel like many authors I've seen lately, it at least appears to be as though they have a say in casting, like ultimate veto power or something. And I'm wondering if if that's why, because a lot of the authors that I follow are like science fiction and fantasy. So I'm wondering if they were clued into this and were like, yeah, we need to make that contract a little bit, uh, a little bit, uh, give me a little bit more override power on, on things so that it's true to the work. I mean that it may well be because of high profile things like that. I mean, you know, at this point it's, it's getting to be a huge issue. The fact that things keep getting whitewashed, that Hollywood keeps whitewashing characters. So, you know, there's, like I said, unless you're J.K. Rowling level of powerful and in control, you don't always get that kind of thing built into your contract. But I feel like that's the kind of thing that maybe some authors are like, I, I don't mind giving up this area of creative control, but I really need you to not ever cast my characters who are brown as white people. Yeah. You know, as as a creator, not a writer like this, I often wonder how much control I'd be able to give up. Like I have, I don't know, I'm, I'm very possessive of my ideas. And so like trusting somebody else like that would be, I think, a huge challenge for me. I also, I also think about that. But I also remember how like when I was much younger and I would go see movies that were based on a book that I would love and I would get really angry I'm mad that <laughs> the movies didn't, you know, exactly recreate the book. Um, but I also recognize that a lot of those movies were just bad movies anyway. And it wasn't their non-cueing to the exactness of the book that was the problem. Because there are some movies that, you know, leave out certain things from books or, you know, do things in, in a very different way that still work they have to, the thing is that they have to work as movies. Like any kind of adaptation has to work in the medium that it's being adapted to. And that's more important, I think, than being like super duper accurate to the book um, or to the source material. Uh, I'm thinking a lot about the movie Arrival, which is based on a Ted Chang story. And I don't want to give any huge spoilers for Arrival or for the story, but I think that it would be people who have seen Arrival should run out and get the book. Um, it's a it's a collection of his short stories called Stories of Your Life and Others. And you should read the story that Arrival is based on because the structure of that story is v- different. Some of the things that, some of the ways that the information comes at you in the movie is very different from the way that information comes at you in the story. And I remember the way that that information came at me in the story when I watched the movie and I was like, oh, they're doing this completely differently. But it worked. Like in a movie setting, the way that they rearranged the information worked. The information itself didn't change, but it was the way that the information was structured that changed. And I thought that that was actually pretty brilliant. 
I still haven't read. So I Arrival was one of my favorite movies of last year. Maybe my favorite movie last year. My favorite movie in a while, maybe even. Um, and again, speaking of the incomparable, I can put a link to the show notes or link in the show notes to the episode that we did on Arrival. But I still haven't read the book, even though or read the short story, even though I've seen the movie. But I thought the movie was so brilliant. Like the very beginning, you think one thing. And by the time you get to the end, you're like, whoa, this is not what I thought it was. And then you rewatch it and you're like, wow, it's completely different on a second, a second watch through. Was the book like that too? Or the short story? I don't know why I keep calling it a book. Well, it's in a book. The short story is in a book. Um, actually, no, uh, huh. it's not. It's, and, and again, like, I don't want to spoil it for anybody because I actually feel like even though I, I enjoyed the movie and the way that the information was structured in the movie, even though I had, I'd read the story. And so it wasn't the same reveal for me as it was mm-hmm. for people who had never read the story. Uh, but I also really feel like just the way that that information comes at you in the film is, is very important. And so I don't want to spoil it, um, even though it makes it hard to talk about, right. but, um, but yeah, like that, the, the, the thing that is a surprise in the movie is not a surprise in the story, but it's not meant to be. Mm-hmm. But again, like the way that they were crafting the structure in the story, um, that that was or the structure in the movie. I understood why they did that. It made total sense. And I liked that choice. All right. Well, I've got to read the short story so I can I can compare the two. Uh, speaking of kind of these these choices that you make uh one of the big big differences between the coldest city and um atomic blonde is they gender bent one of the characters and i would call this a spoiler but it's pretty clear in the trailer that there's some kind of sexy times happening <laughs> um, so i'm just going to say like in the book that those sexy time characters were you know man and woman and in the movie it's two women and i'm actually gonna let anthony talk about this decision a little bit here sophia battelle plays the uh french agent who is a man in the book it the character is called pierre lasalle and in the movie she's called delphine lasalle um and that was all kurt's idea actually that was entirely from the very first draft of the script uh you know we got it and we're like oh wow she's a woman um and I thought it was great right from the off. The minute I read it, I was like, yes, brilliant. Because firstly, it's another way to get a woman on screen in what is otherwise a bit of a sausage fest. Uh, you know, and understandably so, given that it's set in 1989 in the world of, you know, sort of international espionage, which was not overly filled with uh, women outside of, you know, sort of administrative and secretarial roles at that time. Uh, so it was a way to get a woman on screen in what felt like a natural fashion um and also i just thought it was a really good idea a really good sort of twist because people would not be expecting it and especially not if they'd read the graphic novel so i mean there was some pushback uh against it you know there were some people saying like oh i'm not sure about this you know this change seems a bit but i thought no this is a great idea because as i say it gets another woman on screen and it means that the whole sort of uh the obligatory spy seduction scene <laughs> angle you know has a different angle and you can approach it with a through a completely different lens literally um as opposed to in the book where it is a very you know sort of normal i mean it's 
reversed in that in the book it is very clear that Lorraine seduces Pierre. Uh, nevertheless, you know, rather than the traditional sort of, oh, the male spy seduces the woman. So we have that reversal, and that's quite deliberate. But nevertheless, it is still a, you know, what you might call normal heteronormative relationship. Um, so, yeah, I thought it was a great idea to make that character a woman. And it's so good. I don't know. Tempest, have you seen Atomic Blonde or read The Coldest City? I haven't done either. This is really sad. I'm not, I'm not prepared myself for, not for this conversation by, by watching the movie or, or reading the graphic novel. Um, it's mostly because I don't see very many movies. Oh, no. Because I just, I, ah, things. Um, but mm-hmm. I, I do love that idea. I love that the, the gender bending, it, it not only like tweaks what he was already tweaking from what we see in a lot of mainstream media and what um, is, you know, as he put it, you know, heteronormative still. Um, so you, so that tweak goes even further with the movie. And I think that also it's just, sometimes it's just appropriate to, you know, go further with representation in one medium when you're translating it from another one. Yeah, for sure. And I, I felt like it was really, really well done. I, I saw Atomic Blonde and I was like, yes, this should have been, you know, this should have been the book. Not this should have been the book, but I, I loved it. I thought it was such a good choice. And if you, it, it was really, really well done. And it was done very naturally, I guess. It, it wasn't like, oh, like, look at us. We're you know, gay people, but it was, it was a very natural like progression. It, it, it made sense. It didn't feel like a lot of times you have like same gender couples and it feels like it's being done either for, you know, uh, sensationalism or, you know, to, to check a diversity box or something like that. And it just felt so natural in this, in this movie and, you know, more, you know, more capable spy women, I think is, is pretty great. More Capable Spy Women is the name of my next band. Let's do it. I can't sing or play an instrument, but we can. We'll we make can, it happen. We'll make it you happen. You play the tambourine. Like there was always that one kid in the Partridge family who was just playing the tambourine. <laughs> Only if I can walk around with a name badge that's like that kid in the Partridge family. Yes. Yes. Okay. So one of the things that Anthony does and he does well is he writes strong women characters and he writes strong women leads in um, in his stuff. And and we talked about that some. Let's let's go through a, a quick list of female lead characters. So Ripley from Alien, uh, Sarah Connor from Terminator and Terminator 2 and uh, especially Terminator 2, and Halo Jones, uh, an Alan Moore written story in 2000 AD, and, you know, many, many others. I grew up with the idea that while female lead characters were unusual, uh, they shouldn't be. You know, that they were just, uh, I shouldn't say unusual, that they were rare compared to male characters, but they weren't any less capable, and in some cases were more capable than a male character in the same situation. So. I kind of grew up with that and I'm very grateful that I did because as a result, the idea that a woman can be the lead character in the story has never been unusual or strange to me. Uh, it's And then as I got older, I realized just how rare it is. And that was when I started resolving to actually make an effort to do my own tiny, tiny little part in trying to course correct this. So yeah, I, 
I love that the people I know who are writing things are very cognizant of this. It's uh, it's encouraging. And I hope that it's not just the people I know because I tend to have a pretty progressive group of friends, but like that people are being cognizant of, oh, hey, yeah, women, women can do things. They can kick butt. Can they? I don't know. I watch a lot of TV and it's not happening there. And as we all know, TV is the, haha, I can't even keep a straight face. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, but, but that also speaks to, you know, aspects of representation. We've, we've talked about this before. Just the fact that he was able to see some really great examples of um, lead women who were doing, you know, action movie stuff. And then he was like, oh, that's awesome. You know, women can totally do action movie stuff. And then he was like, wait, how come this is as rare as it is? That sucks. Let's not let's not recreate that problem. And, you know, I think a lot of people, uh, especially a lot of creative people, go through that same process where for whatever reason, they're able to to see a great representation and it gets in their mind that they're like, yes, well, that's the way that it should be. And and then they automatically default to saying, well, I just want to keep that trend going. Um, or even if they, if they discover that like, it's not as trendy as they, they once thought it was, they were like, well, it should be. And also, um, everybody loves Linda Hamilton's yeah character in Terminator 2 because it's the best. Sarah Connor. Gotta love Sarah. I mean, we don't talk about what happened to Sarah Connor in other movies because those other movies don't count. (laughs) None of them count. She, None of them. I, I I didn't mind the the last one with uh, why can I not think of her name? Daenerys Targaryen as as anyway, yeah. Uh, no, I'm sorry, but <laughs> Amelia Clark can't act. I'm really, oh, really. I'm gonna. We're gonna get. I'm oh, gonna get so much hate mail. I know. Are, I know. But I don't care because no. No. Also, I just I disagree with that entire movie's premise. And I also because here's the thing. And and I, this is interesting because it's like it goes to talking about like translating things to different mediums. Right. The Sarah Connor Chronicles, which was the Fox TV show that lasted two seasons, um, was actually a much better entry into the Terminator franchise than any Terminator movie after number two. I'm just going to go on record as saying that. Um because, you know, they killed Sarah Connor and some of them, some of them star Christian Bale. No one needs that. Uh, nobody um, needs that. Nobody needs that. No. Then they brought Arnie back for, and, you know, and, and I've, and here's the other thing. Like, I felt like the Sarah Connor Chronicles writers, producers, creators, whatever, whoever those people were, understood how time travel and paradoxes work better than the movie people. They really, really do. Because, like, that time travel paradox nonsense that they tried to pull off in that last movie. <laughs> no, no. That's not how you do that, people. That's not how that works. It, no. It's just, it's terrible. And so, even though Sarah Connor Chronicles Season 2 was kind of a mess, there were a lot of things about it that were not okay. Um, but I I chalk that up to American television. There's just some things about American television that are not okay. And that's, I think, what what made that second season more of a problem than it should have been. Um, It was still much better than any movie after Terminator 2. (laughs) I have heard good things. And Amelia Clark can't act. I have heard good things about Sarah Connor Chronicles. I don't know. I I think I liked the premise maybe more than the execution, but like, I don't know. 
I, I want I want a hard ass. Can I say that? I want a hard ass robot from the future to come take care of me. Like is all I'm saying. Like if if I could get get a reformed robot to come like help me clean house and you know whatever, I would be okay with that. And and maybe that's why I let a lot slide. I don't know. Okay. All right. I'll give you that. <laughs> So one of the things that I really uh, that I have talked about is how the coldest city, you know, that gender burning aspect is great for the movie. But the coldest city itself is great because um, I don't know about you, Tempest. I didn't grow up with a lot of like women spies in my media that I could, you know, aspire to be or look up to or at least be like, wow, she's so cool. Yeah, I didn't pay attention to spy business because I was like, what? That looks like James Bond. Right. right we're going to get more hate mail. Uh, yes. James Bond is terrible. It's awful. Like, I don't care about James Bond. Why do people care. like James Bond? I don't know. I tried to watch a Bond movie. My mother it's would so watch boring. them and I'd be like, what? what is this? This is terrible. I mean, Sean Connery is very attractive, but. Mm, Speaking mm, of accents. No. Yeah, but. <laughs> no. It's yeah. terrible. They're terrible. So yeah, so I, I never pay attention to such things. And so I was always I, I was more interested in seeing um women being cool starship captains. That's why I watched Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, like I think about a lot of, you know, growing up a lot of the people, you know, it was it was it was James Bond, you know, my mom watching the Bond movies, uh, which I never got. And then when I got older, I was like, oh, okay, I'll give them a shot. And they're still really boring. I never even tried the novels. Um, or like even, you know, on the goofy spectrum, like get smart, you know, um, I guess we had like Charlie's angels, but they weren't spies, you know, we didn't have a lot. And, um, so I talked to Anthony about why, why is the protagonist of the coldest city and therefore atomic blonde, a woman? Well, and it did allow me to then show the attitude of all the male characters to the fact that she's a woman, you know, and Percival, uh, famously, the character that James McAvoy plays in the movie uh, is fundamentally quite similar, but, you know, there are also quite a few differences in the way he portrays him. And the main difference is simply the fact that in the book, Percival is a middle-aged, mustachioed, slightly overweight dinosaur. Um, And the second book, The Coldest Winter, explains some of his background and kind of why he behaves the way he does. But he is a complete misogynist dinosaur. And uh, it was interesting to be able to show that because, again, if Lorraine had been, I don't know, Larry, uh, you know, Percival's character would have been the same, but there would have been very little opportunity to demonstrate that side of his character. And I think having that side really rounds him out as a character and makes him more interesting because Lorraine is more interesting. And that's actually, it's something I hadn't considered as I was reading the book is or and watching the movie is like if Lorraine had been Larry it would have just been guys talking to each other but instead we do get to see kind of that uh tension and conflict that his very overt misogyny brings to things and I think that's another layer of interest in the story is like not only is this a woman who's doing a thing that that women are not known for doing and um, her her boss is kind of a jerk about it um which is like welcome to being a woman um but anyway 
right? <laughs> yeah, I actually I was um just at a, a festival, Reader Fest in Seattle, uh, this past week, and one of the authors there was was talking about how uh she created this secondary world um and you know pirate ship captains i will i will find the author and the book i will link to them in the show notes um but but she was also saying like that she had created this world of a fantasy world um but still you know had her protagonist who's a woman dealing with the kind of sexism and misogyny that she had faced when working in um you know tech Silicon Valley tech bro world, whatever. And she would still have people saying to her, this is such unrealistic levels of misogyny. And she's like, really? Because everything that my character experiences in this book is an analog of something that I experienced while working with Silicon Valley tech bros. Um, And I think that this is another aspect of representation. Not only is it about uh, having different kinds of people on the screen so that different kinds of people uh, can see themselves, can, um, you know, have a character that, that they can, they, they can find a mirror in or a window into someone else's life, but also just a representation of experiences because, you know, misogyny is very normalized uh, in some cultures. I, I can, can see how it might be normalized in the spy culture, mm-hmm. but it also, if, if you only, have characters that are like steeped in that normalized misogyny, then it's not necessarily that a, a work of creative art would then perpetuate that misogyny by, but it, but it, because it, you're only seeing it from like inside that point of view, it doesn't necessarily get commented on. So having characters who are, you know, both affected by it and who have that point of view and having them interact um, is, is a way to, explore what that's about um which is just as important i think as having representation just you know because for the sake of showing the world how it really is it it also mm-hmm. allows just like all these other different kinds of interactions and points of view to become apparent to an audience that might not be aware of it yep totally agree uh, and that's yeah that's why this kind of representation matters this is also why uh to kind of get out of the the story creation world, but why I so value uh, why I so value like white men talking very subtly about feminism, like very very gently, because there are a lot of people who will listen to that and it'll kind of start creating cracks in the uh, I don't know hard manly everything is all right exterior (laughs) so that then people like me who are kind of done being subtle can can kind of worm worm our way in a little bit more this this metaphor is really really mixed but you know what I mean like we need people who are very subtle and very gentle and we need people uh who are uh not subtle that is not a word that describes me at all uh to come in after and talk about things and that's why uh, you know, while very often I wish that people would do more, uh, sometimes I have to stop and think, okay, yeah, but if everybody is doing things the way that I do things, that's going to alienate a lot of people. And so I think, you know, to wind it back around, that's exactly what, what books and works like The Coldest City do is they kind of show kind of those, those 
those perspectives and, and the way things can be for a lot of people so that, you know, people will be like, oh, is that really what life is like for, you know, women spies or whatever? I don't know. It is. It's also what life is like for every woman who's ever had to deal with men. Yes. Um, but that's real, a really unsubtle position to take. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> Sorry. I don't think Not people... Not subtle today. I don't think people here for subtlety. <laughs> I'm, I haven't had uh, enough coffee to be subtle with you about this. <laughs> so I thought all of this was really, really fascinating. And again, to hear more about kind of the process of, you know, writing The Coldest City, uh, finding an artist, uh, getting the option for, for the book, uh, working, you know, to get that production title, all of that. Anthony talks about that in that episode of The Incomparable that's in the show notes. But I also wanted to talk to him because we are a podcast about exploring the roots of creative genius. I wanted to talk to him about creativity. So I asked him about his writing process and here's what he had to say. It differs actually a little uh, depending on what I'm writing. Um, Because writing comics and writing games, you know, sort of exercises different parts of the brain. But they're still essentially the same, which is that if I'm trying to come up with an original idea, I have, like every other writer, notebooks and uh, text files and what have you filled with jotted notes and ideas. And most of them I know will never come to anything. You know, that's kind of the price you pay. Um, Because most of them are literally just an idea. And then the minute you start thinking about the, how could this work as a story, you realise the answer is actually it couldn't work as a story. Uh, But nevertheless, I keep them around because... Uh, what I tend to do is keep all these notes, write down every idea I had, have, and then over the course of time, uh, and I, I know that's vague, but I'm afraid I can't be any more specific, over the course of a period of time, sometimes, you know, these ideas, one of them will keep coming to mind. One of them will sort of keep knocking and going, hey, I'm still here and I'm quite interesting, uh, and compel me to to look further at it. Um, sometimes... I will have a dim memory of something I've made a note of and then I'll get a new idea and that memory will suddenly come up and go, ha-ha, what about if you combined me, my this old memory, with this new thought that you've had? And, you know, lots of stories come about through that kind of meshing of two separate ideas and thinking, oh, wait, what if I combine these two? That might be interesting. Sometimes it isn't, but, you know, oftentimes it is. Uh, and so that's... And I, again, I know this is maddeningly vague, but it, that's my process is I just write everything down that I think of, that I think might even be, you know, a, a, an image or a sound or a line of dialogue or a character or a situation or anything that I think might be of use to a story somewhere at some time and then rely on my almost subconscious mind to kind of sort them out. And eventually, yeah, one of them pops up to the surface and goes, I'm still here and I'm quite interesting. Why don't you have a go at me? Um, And at that point, that's when I then sit down and we'll start making more long form notes, if you like, and start actually drilling down. Okay, if I did do this idea, how would it work? What format would it be? Uh, Who would the characters have to be? What sort of story arc are we talking about here? What's interesting about this story? What would make it different? What is interesting about it to me? Because that's another thing is I always try to find what is interesting to me about a story because I feel that's what makes the stories I write the stories I write rather than the story somebody else will write. I feel like this is one of the recurring themes that I'm picking out. Um, And maybe it's not stuff that's been 
stated here in originality, but I know one of the things that we that was kind of a theme early on is uh, you show up and you write, whether or, or you show up and you create, whether that's writing or painting or you know working on your app or or whatever that is. You've got to sit down and do it. Sometimes even if you don't feel like it, that doesn't mean you have to do it every day. But it does mean that you do have to show up and do it at least sometimes, right? But I feel like this is something that I'm I'm hearing a lot lately is writing every idea down. And I think it's something that we have touched on in here is like every time I have a thought, like I have a text file on my phone and every time I have a thought, I jot it down. And, um, maybe that, that expands out later or, or maybe nothing comes of it, or maybe in Anthony's case, it combines into one mega idea that, you know, you can then use to, uh, to create something. Um, but I think I, I feel like I need to get in the habit of, of jotting things down more than I do. Yeah, it's it's very important and I I don't do it enough. Well, here's here's what happens. Like I have a lot of writing journals and I write in my writing journal pretty much every day now. Um I'll write down ideas for stories or whatever. And you would think that writing things down would help me to remember them, but I don't always. So sometimes I'll be flipping back through an old journal looking for something and I'll be like, oh, I had this story idea. This seems like a really good story. How did I forget about this? And so it is good to write things down, but if you are the type of person who won't necessarily remember some of those ideas if you write them down, like keeping all your ideas in like an idea folder. Like I, I recently created one um, in Evernote, a notebook in Evernote um, called Ideas, um, where like I just like gather all those snippets of things um, as I go back through my journals and find them. And I'm like, oh, right. I I have like a whole system for um, tagging things in my journal so that they show up in Evernote that I haven't been very good about dealing with the past <laughs> couple of years, but that's, that's what I'm supposed to do. But I also, it's also, um, really important to remember that some of your ideas that even you've tried to make work as stories, uh, but they didn't work for whatever reason, um, can still sort of like come back around and, become part of other things. Um, like Anthony was saying, I'm thinking actually specifically of, um, I had an idea very long time ago. Oh my God. I don't even want to think about how many years ago, but a very long time ago that was sparked by reading a Kelly link story. Cause in a Kelly link story, there was a character who I can't remember the reason why this character was flying around. I think it was a dream maybe. Um, but at one point the character who was flying in her dream, flew over a city that was a labyrinth. And I was like, what? That's an awesome idea. And so then I was like, well, now I want to write a story about a city that is a labyrinth. And I tried to make it work in a lot of different ways. It didn't quite work in all those ways. Um, I put this that story idea away for a very long time. And then I started writing other things. And the short story that became the novella that became the novel that I'm writing right now, which I you know I've complained about <laughs> on this podcast before because I have feelings. I still have feelings about this. Um, when it became a novella and I had to think about the backstory of one of the, the characters, I realized that I could use the backstory from that, you know, or I could use the whole labyrinth um city idea as part of the backstory of a character like it wasn't necessarily going to be part of the the main action in the novella that turned into a novel but it was 
an important key to what had been going on with that character in the past. And so, and and now I'm actually back to writing stories set in the city that is a labyrinth, um, but now with a much clearer idea of how that would work as a story. So yeah, this is like a multi-years-long process of like trying to make it into a thing and it's not a thing and it's the background of a thing and now it's the foreground of a different thing. But all of that, you know, if you are a creative person, like nothing is wasted, like no attempt at an idea is wasted. I'm not sad that those earlier stories didn't work out because it kept that idea in my brain for longer and allowed my brain to sort of bring it back around to a place where it could be made useful in a later creative work. Yeah. I mean, it's basically trying things like putting a puzzle together, right? It's, it's, you, you're trying it and it's not working quite right. And so, you know, you wait until you have more of the puzzle together and then you can, you can deal with this piece and, um, you know, maybe it's a puzzle piece in the wrong box, but at least you know what it looks like now, right? And you can put it in the right place in the right puzzle at the right time later on. Yeah, exactly. So I think one of the things that creative people fear is, uh, people having similar ideas to you. And I feel like uh, this is definitely an attitude that I had um, not not so much now, but definitely, you know, in my teens and 20s, I felt very much like I couldn't share ideas because someone was going to steal my idea. And now that I have, you know, kind of a business, I get people who are like, well, don't you realize that, you know, so-and-so person is your competitor in this you know, particular type of business you do, which is I work with um, Mac and iOS developers on kind of the the non-code side of getting their software, their apps out into the world. And people are like, oh, well, so-and-so is your competitor. And it's like, no, that person is not my competitor. Like we do similar things, but we do them differently. Uh, we had similar ideas for a business in a way that we could help people, but our approach is completely different. And Anthony and I talked about that a little bit. And here's, um, here's, what he has to say or a story about people having similar ideas at the, at the same time. There's a wonderful story that I tell uh, about how I, one of my books, a uh, comic series that I did with image uh, and we're on hiatus. It's still going, but we've you know taken a pause for now called the fuse, uh, which I started a few years ago. And uh, when I was conceiving that and sort of getting ready to launch it, I discovered that uh, a colleague of mine, another comics writer, had and was also developing a story that had basically the same high concept, that high concept being murder mystery cops in space. Uh, And we were just chatting and he said, oh, I'm doing a murder mystery cops in space story as well. I was like, oh, Ah, and we realized that they were going to launch around the same time as well. And then, uh, not long after that, I discovered that another mutual friend of ours was also doing a murder mystery cops in space story. And so I thought, oh my God, what is happening? So uh, cue lots of emails and us swapping the uh, scripts to our first issues, sending them around to each other so that we could read them and just double check that, you know, it it would be okay uh, and fend off any questions. Because the worst thing you can do is if they were basically the same thing, uh, if you launch them all at the same time, the public will inevitably think that one of us has copied the other. Um, you know, regardless of whether that's true or not, that people will assume that. So, but we got all these scripts and they couldn't have been more different. Uh, and that really actually was kind of a breakthrough for me in some ways, because 
you know, that kind of worry or somebody else is doing a story that, you know, sounds very similar to something I thought of has often, you know, it's something that plagues a lot of writers, especially if you work in a medium like comics where you're expected to produce a lot of, generate a lot of material. Um, And what I realised was that I really don't need to worry about that because you can give these three writers, and we're all about the same age, we all have the same cultural influences, but you can give these three writers the same basic high concept and what will result are wildly different stories uh, to the point where when they actually did launch, I don't think a single person, certainly to my knowledge, said anything to me or any of the other guys about, hey, this is a bit similar to these other books. I don't think anybody noticed because they were so different in execution. And I think that's the thing. The execution is the key. And so that's why, as I say, I look for things that are interesting to me so that the story I write will be about what is interesting to me. And that is, that, you know, by default can only make it unique and make a story that only I can tell. So the moral of the story is only you can tell the stories that you want to tell the way you want to tell them. So don't be afraid. Yes. Yes. Don't be afraid. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's fun because we we recently did an episode that is only available to members of the Relay FM network. And mm. perhaps you should become a member of the Relay FM network if you aren't already. So you can hear our awesome episode called Where Ideas Come From, which is basically a bunch of different uh, creative people talking about where they get their ideas. It is amazing and also kind of hilarious. Yeah, it was great. Um, <laughs> and, and one of the things that I I love about the the whole like oh you know where 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 do I get my ideas where do you get your ideas I'm gonna go to that same place to get get those ideas or you know I I'm gonna share my idea with you and then you can write it and then I'll I'll take you know seventy five percent of the profit <laughs> because I, yeah. I can't with the idea and yeah. the idea is always of course like what is the most important thing but as I was saying earlier you know ideas can be great you can have like fifty eleven really cool ideas and then you go to execute those ideas and it's terrible and and here's what i find super interesting about anthony anthony's story is that i think that there are one of the reasons why people think that like oh you know they're going to steal my idea um they're going to go and they're going to create something that'll be just like what I, I create or whatever um is because so much of our media that isn't literature, and I include comic books in this literature, um, so much of our media that isn't literature is so derivative mm-hmm. and terrible and and is like recycled ideas all the time that people think that that is how most creativity works. Because I, I, I can't remember what I was watching recently. It was some video on YouTube. I watched my, too many YouTube videos, but it was some <laughs> video on YouTube that was talking about... Um, you know, movies that just had like these recycled ideas and plot lines and whatever. And it's sort of what you you come to expect from from sequels, at least like that was true um, through the 80s and the 90s for like the majority of things. This is why I don't go see movies, um, because like I was trained to be like, what? That's terrible. It's all going to be terrible. <laughs> but I remember noticing this as a kid, like Ghostbusters too. Ghostbusters was one of my favorite movies when I was a kid. OK, I loved that movie. And so and then I watched the cartoon like Oh my gosh, I was so, yeah, I was like so into the world of the Ghostbusters and then Ghostbusters 2 came out and like I was there, I was ready, begging people to like take me to that movie theater on the day that it opened. And while I enjoyed 
some aspects of it. That was really the first time as a kid where I was like, why, why is this happening? Like, why are Peter and Dana broken up? And why do we have to go through them getting together again? Why, you know, is this plot element recycled? Why are we back to this point where the Ghostbusters are disrespected and nobody believes in ghosts? Like, I really don't think that people would have gone back to not believing in ghosts after the events of that first movie. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But they didn't know how else to make a movie except for to recycle most of the elements from the first movie and then put it in the second one. Like, so many sequels are like that. The other one I remember noticing as a kid was... um, uh, that werewolf movie with Michael J. Fox. Teen I Wolf? I remember what it was called. Teen Wolf. There we go. Teen Wolf. Teen Wolf 1, that was actually a pretty decent movie. Teen Wolf 2 was the exact same movie, but mm-hmm. with Jason Bateman. And first of all, we didn't need the exact same movie because we already had it. And second of all, we didn't need Jason Bateman. Like, basically, <laughs> there was nothing about any of that that was okay. Um. So, yeah. So, a lot of movie stuff is just recycled ideas um, done even worse than before. Every now and then you get a recycled idea that's done better, but it's still a recycled idea. And I think that people think that that, you know, it's like, oh, somebody's going to steal my idea. They're going to write something just like I would write because that's what they see most of the time in media. Mm-hmm. But it's it's really just literally not true. Like, you know, from the story that Anthony told, but also it, here's another thing that that doesn't get taken into account. And I think, again, it's in part because so much of our media is made by people who are the same type of person, mm-hmm. um, even though this doesn't necessarily have to be true. But when you have ideas that where the execution is filtered through a person who has a very different life experience than, you know, the that author over there, that that comic book writer over there, that poet over there, the way that those ideas get expressed are going to be very different because of how different the person is who is writing it. Mm -hmm. Um, This is actually also why sometimes retellings of old fairy tales or or just like rebootings, reimaginings of things can be really good, even though it's like the same, quote, the same idea. The reboot is amazing. Um, The retelling is amazing because it is being filtered through the experience of somebody who's not just like that person over there, or that person over there. They're not, you know, a person who is considered the mainstream, the dominant paradigm. They're a woman. They're a black woman. They're a Vietnamese American immigrant. They're a trans person uh, who is also a lesbian. You know, whatever it is, like whatever the identity marker is of the creative person who's doing that reimagining, whatever their viewpoint has an effect on how they're going to re you know how they're going to interpret that idea or reinterpret that idea or whatever it is all of those things are so important and so but you know in Anthony's case it was you know a lot of guys who had the same general background and they still came up with three very different ways to conceptualize that high level concept which i love but you know there there are a lot of factors that go into that when so i i, I guess like I I understand why people worry about, you know, ideas and, and protecting their ideas and whatever. But really, yeah, you just got to write something that is the kind of thing that you would love to read. And that will then produce something that's going to be different from what the next person produces because they're producing something that they would love to read. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, nobody can tell a story or create a piece of art or create the app that you're going to you're going to 
create. And that's why we have so many, like talking about app development. I mean, how many to-do list apps are there? This is an example that is going to come up over and over and over again, because everybody has a different way of thinking about and approaching tasks. And that's why we have different task management systems and the same for, you know, a million, a million other things like uh, text editors, markdown editors, everything, you know, we, we think about things differently fundamentally. So if the way you would create an app with a lot of constraints would be different from person to person to person. And it is, and you can tell that because you can go to an app store on whatever platform you use and see that there are 50 hojillion different kinds of to-do apps constrained in a lot of ways. When you're writing a story or creating a, a, a painting or drawing or doing a choreography or composing a piece where your possibilities are, you know, virtually limitless. I mean, there are constraints. If you're doing a painting, you're also not doing a dance probably, although there are crossovers there. Uh, You know, it's all going to be different. And just because something has done or just because someone has done something doesn't mean that you don't also get a chance to execute a similar idea. Yeah. And and I think that that's also why I super encourage people, especially people who are creative, who come from marginalized backgrounds or minority backgrounds, um, to, to not worry as much about appealing to the mainstream by becoming more like what they think the mainstream wants them to be. And that can be a hard line to walk because there are many instances of people not getting that book deal or not selling that story or not, you know, selling this painting or whatever creative work that you're, you are trying to sell or you're trying to get in a gallery or whatever it is, uh, you know, if people saying to them, well, you know, this is, I, I no nobody can understand this because it's too X, it's too Y, it's too gay, it's too lesbian, it's too, you know, Filipino immigrant, it's too this, it's too that. Um, that that's a real thing that happens. But I also think that until there is more insistence on specificity of identity when it comes to art, um, you we can't like push past that. And there there will be people who gatekeepers who actually embrace that more than they are like, oh, this is this is too weird. It's too new. You just have to find them. Finding them can be hard, but this is this is what agents and managers are for like good agents and managers will help you navigate those waters I think Mm -hmm. yep for sure um so lastly I asked Anthony for his advice for people who want to be creative and here's what he had to say okay there are two I think ingredients and you know what look I'm just some guy you know somebody else will give you a different answer but I think there are two ingredients to creative success and by that I mean literally success in your creations. I'm not talking about financial success or, you know, sales numbers or anything like that, but just success as a creator, I think comes down to firstly, again, create things that you care about, create things that you want to see in the world. Um, because if they don't sell very well, or they don't make you a living or whatever, then at least you know that you have done good work that you can be proud of. Because if you don't, if you compromise and you make stuff that you actually don't really care about in the hope that it will sell really well, what happens when it doesn't sell really well? Well, now you've got nothing. You haven't even got a work that, piece of work that you're proud of. So 
I, I think that is vital just for a healthy life and a healthy mind. Um, and then the other one is just sheer bloody-minded perseverance. You absolutely have to keep going. You you can't give up uh, and you have to finish things. And I think those are all kind of linked. And that's more important than many people realize when they're starting out. You must finish things. Everybody, myself included, everybody has a hundred projects where we've written like two pages and then gone, uh, not sure. And then rewritten the, those two pages and then rewritten them again and again, and they never go anywhere and you never finish them and they will never, you know, you will never finish them. If you finish something and part of, part of the reason that you don't finish them is because it doesn't match this perfect ideal that you have in your mind of the thing you want to create. If you finish a project, then you can judge it because then it's finished. And no, it's not as good as the perfect ideal that you have in your head. It never is, ever. There is not a single creator in the world who will say to you, yes, that thing I made is exactly the thing that I had in my head when I first conceived it. That never happens. So it's okay if it doesn't live up to that ideal. What's important is that when it's finished, you can look at it as a whole and see how it falls short. And then you can either revise it or you can move on to something else and go, okay, that didn't work, but I think I know why it didn't work. So this next one, I won't make that same mistake again, and I'll try and do it better. And that is the life of a creator. You just keep doing that. Every time you come to a new work, you try to make it better than the previous one. You try to avoid any mistakes you made in the previous one, or you just try to do things better that you maybe weren't satisfied with in the previous one. But you can't do that. You can't make those judgments unless it's finished, because until it's finished, there is always this idea in your head that, well, it's okay. The last 20 pages will make everything better and then it'll be perfect. And it just never is. So you have to get yourself out of that mindset and instead finish each work of art, no matter how small or big it may be. So Tempest, I think I know what our first t-shirt is going to be. If we get to a point where we have an audience where we're having a t-shirt makes sense, I, th I think I know what it is. Tell me. I think it's something is, well, okay. So something that I say a lot that falls right in line with what Anthony was saying is for writers and writing, the magic is in the editing. The, the, the magic is not in the brain dump to get it on, you know, the page or the screen or whatever. The magic comes with edits. And so I think that is our first T-shirt is something that says um, magic is in revision or magic is in, um, you know, in iteration or something like that. That will be... I'm pulling for, you know, refining that phrasing so it's applicable to our large, uh, varied audience because we have people in a ton of different pursuits who listen, but something that applies to everybody that reminds us all that the magic in creation is not actually the first blush. It is in refinement. Writing is revising Although that doesn't apply to like all the arts, but yes, yeah, something, somebody told me that and I was like, you dirty, dirty liar, <laughs> shut up. Um, but they were absolutely correct. Yeah. Um, writing is revising and that's, you know, true. I think of a lot of different um, aspects of creativity. It's yeah, it's in the, the refinement process. Mm -hmm. Magic is in refinement. Yes. Um, and, and Anthony was saying, um, you know, how that's one of the reasons why he liked NaNoWriMo was, you know, the whole, the, the completing of things because, you know, doing NaNoWriMo 
get you to a point where like you write and write and write and then you get to 50,000 and you maybe haven't completed a thing, but you've reached a goal. Um, and, and sometimes that's important to, to set yourself to doing that, even if it doesn't mean that the goal is that you have a complete thing that is like ready. It's like, Oh, look, ha, ah, yay. I wrote 50,000 words. That's a, that's a whole complete thing. Um, now it's ready to be sent off to various agents and then I will make JK Rowling levels of money. Mm-hmm. Not how that works, but, um, but yeah, but, but the process of doing something every day for a month, because not everybody can, can be involved in their creative pursuits every day for various reasons. Some people can, and some people can't, and it's totally fine either way. Um, but sometimes just like making that goal of for this month, I'm going to do this for this month. I'm going to, to write every day for this month, I'm going to work to get to, to this goal. Um, and, and we're going to talk about that in, in a later episode in more depth, but you know, yes, finishing things, being consistent about how you go about doing that creative stuff, revising, not just like being, being like, oh crap, this didn't turn out the way that I wanted it to the first time. Like all those things are Throw so important. So I, right. And I love, I love that Anthony said that because it's something that I think that a lot of people need to hear because it, no matter how you hear it over and over again, no matter how many times you hear it when you're in the middle of it, you're just like, why, why is it a scene working out? Yep. Why is it, this story is terrible. And you throw yourself on the floor, or at least I do. <laughs> well, it, toddler. Yeah. <laughs> I can see it. I can see the, the fist pounding and the legs kicking. And I have, I have a, a mental image of like a, I don't know, like a bitmoji cartoony tempest doing that now. Um, yeah, this happened to me just, just a couple of days ago, there's a project that I'm working on and I need to reach out to people about, um, about something to do with this project. I can't be more explicit, but, um, and I wrote this initial email and I was like, this is, this email is awful. Why do I ever write anything? This email doesn't make sense. It's bad. It's so bad. And I struggled with it. And this is just like a four paragraph email, right? And I struggled and I struggled and it was so hard. And I sent it to the person who's approving things on um, I sent it to the person who's approving things on this project and, and I was like, Oh, it's the worst. And then I read it like three days later. I was like, this email's fine. What was, what was my problem? It's, it's, it's what it needs Man. to be, you know? And, uh, and I do that with creative, you know, like creative writing or, or any kind of creative things. Like this idea is horrible. It's bad. It's awful. And then I come back to it and it's like, Oh wait, no, you did. You did. Okay. Like here, here's maybe where you need to smooth some rough edges and refine things, but, but the bones are here and that's, what's important at this stage. Yeah. I mean, sometimes getting to your best, whatever also requires distance. Um, Stephen King in on writing talks about, he, he talks about a lot of things. Um, Oh my God. But one of the things that, well, yes. Yeah. One of the things he does say, though, is that once he finishes a novel, he always puts that novel away in a drawer for six weeks after he's finished it. Um, and then six weeks later, he can come back to it. And he, he also said that oftentimes when he has written short stories or novellas, they happen in that six-week period while he's, like, letting that novel rest. Um, but he still has to keep working. And so he's like, oh, I'll just write this other short story. Which I was like, oh, that... That explains so many things, but, um, but I like that idea. I've always liked the idea of how sometimes you need to let 
something rest in order to be able to look at it clearly again and to realize that it's not horrible crap because man, those brain weasels can just get into you and make you think that everything that you have done is terrible and that, you know, just things aren't very good. Um, but when you go back to it later, you're like, Oh, wait a minute though. Actually, that wasn't as bad as I thought it was at that moment. But sometimes you're just like really caught up in like what you weren't able to accomplish or what you were trying to do and you couldn't do. Um, yeah. So being able to like separate yourself a little bit and sometimes that separating yourself, you know, some people only need like a little bit of time to do it. Some people need a lot. You know, I, I have, I tried to like put something away for six weeks and I couldn't because I was like, no, I just need to go back and fiddle with it a little bit more. But, um, but yeah, I think that you just have to find out what is your amount of time that you need to be away from a thing, uh, whatever it is before you can look at it a little bit more objectively. Mm -hmm. For sure. All right. Well, let's let Anthony tell you where you can find him online. Well, you can find me online at, basically, because my name is slightly oddly spelled, uh, I am in the fortunate position of being able to get pretty much every URL and social media handle uh, that I desire. So if you go to my website, you'll find links to them. But if you just search around on social media and, you know, spell my name correctly, then you will find me. So I'm at anthonyjohnston.com. I'm on Twitter at anthonyjohnston. I'm at facebook.com slash anthonyjohnston, Instagram, Anthony Johnston, and so on and so on. And so it is spelled... A-N-T-O-N-Y-J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N. So there's no H in Anthony and there is a T in Johnston. A-N-T-O-N-Y-J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N. Spell it correctly and you will find me, no question. And of course, links to all of those things will be in the show notes too. Um, next time, we don't always know what we're going to talk about next time, but um, Anthony brought up NaNoWriMo and our next episode, we are actually talking about NaNoWriMo uh, conveniently and i'm actually wondering if uh subconsciously talking with anthony and and him mentioning it in a clip that that we didn't play is what uh gave me the idea for for reaching out to the chairman of the nanowrimo board to talk about that for next week so i'm I'm looking forward to that episode and and are you doing nanowrimo this year lean well we'll we'll talk about that next episode (laughs) (laughs) I'm rubbing my hands together gleefully. <laughs> well, well, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Um, until then, I am one of your hosts, Aline Sims. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Aline, A-L-E-E-N. I am joined, as ever, by my co-host, K Tempest Radford, who you can find on Twitter at Tiny Tempest. Uh, you can tweet at the show at Originality FM. And until next time, uh, we still don't have a closing. Goodbye. Goodbye.